Chapter 2 of True Tales of Arctic Heroism in the New World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. True Tales of Arctic Heroism in the New World by Adolphus W. Greeley. Chapter 3 Franklin's Crossing of the Barren Grounds. One who never turned his back, but marched breast forward, never doubted clouds would break. Browning Strange as it may now seem, a century since the entire northern coast of North America were wholly unknown, save at two isolated and widely separated points, the mouth of the copper mine and the delta of the Mackenzie. The mouth of the copper mine was the seriously doubted geographical point, as Hearn's discovery thereof in 1771 was made without astronomical observations. Though he did reach the sea, we now know that he placed the mouth of the copper mine nearly 250 miles too far to the north. Mackenzie's journey to the delta of the great river that bears his name was accepted as accurate. In the renewed efforts of Great Britain to discover the Northwest Passage and outline the continental coasts of North America, it was deemed important to supplement the efforts being made by Parry at sea with a land expedition. For this purpose it selected neither a civilian nor a soldier, but a sailor known to the world in history as a famous Arctic explorer, Sir John Franklin who was to attain enduring fame at the price of his life. Franklin had served as signal officer with Nelson at Trafalgar, was wounded while engaged under Pakenham at the Battle of New Orleans, and had commanded an Arctic ship under Buchan in the Spitsbergen Seas. The vicissitudes of Franklin and his companions while on exploring duty in Canada, especially while crossing the barren grounds, are told in this tale. A dangerous voyage by ship through Hudson Straits brought Franklin and his companions, Dr. Richardson, midshipmen Hood and Black, and seamen Hepburn, to York Factory, Hudson Bay, at the end of August 1819. Contrary to the advice of the local agents, he started northward, and after a hazardous journey in the opening winter, involving a trip of 700 miles of marches, canoeing, and portages, reached Cumberland House. With unreasonable ambition, this indomitable man of iron pushed northward in midwinter with Back and Hepburn on a journey to Fort Chippewyon, Athabasca Lake, of 857 miles, during which the whole party barely failed of destruction. While dogs hauled the food and camp gear, the men traveling on snowshoes were pushed to keep up with the dogs. Being Mangurs de Law, novices or tender feet, they suffered intolerable pain in their swollen feet, besides suffering horribly from the blizzards and extreme cold, the temperature at times falling to 90 degrees below the freezing point. The sledges were of the Hudson Bay pattern, differing from those used elsewhere. They are made of two or three boards, the front curving upward, fastened by transverse cleats above. They are so thin that a heavily laden sledge undulates with the irregularities of the snow. 
less than two feet wide as the rule. They are about nine feet long, and have around the edges a lacing by which the load is secured. By a journey of 1,520 miles, Franklin verified Hearn's discovery of the copper mine, though finding its latitude and longitude very far out, and later he built and wintered at Fort Enterprise. It is interesting to note that the only complaint that he makes of his summer journey were the insect pests, the bulldog fly that carries off a bit of flesh at each attack, the irritating sand fly and the mosquito. Of the latter he says, They swarmed under our blankets, goring us with their envenomed trunks and steeping our clothes in blood. The wound is infinitely painful, and when multiplied an hundredfold for many successive days, becomes an evil of such magnitude that cold, famine, and every other concomitant of an inhospitable climate must yield preeminence to it. The mosquito, irritating to madness, drives the buffalo to the plains and the reindeer to the seashore. In the summer of 1821, Franklin descended the Coppermine River, and in a canoe voyage of 550 miles to the eastward, discovered the waters and bordering lands of Bathurst Inlet, Coronation Gulf, and as far as Dease Inlet. The very day that he was forced by failing food to turn back, Captain Perry, R.N., in the fury sailed out of Repulse Bay, 540 miles to the east. With the utmost reluctance, Franklin saw the necessity for a speedy return. It was now the 22nd of August, the nights were fast lengthening, the deer were already migrating, and the air was full of honking wild geese flying in long lines to the south. Both canoes were badly damaged, one having fifteen timbers broken. The other was so racked and warped that repairs were impracticable, the birch bark being in danger of separating from the gunwales at any severe shock. One man had frozen his size, and the others, shaken in mind and worn in body, unaccustomed to the sea, were in such a demoralized state that two of them threw away deer meat, sadly needed, to lighten the boats. Sudden cold set in with snow, a fierce blizzard blew up the high sea, and the inland pools froze over. Return by sea was clearly impossible, and the only chance of saving their lives was to ascend Hood River and reach Fort Enterprise by a land journey across the barren grounds, so dreaded and avoided by the Indians and the Eskimos. With the subsiding gale, they put to sea along the coast, and in three days entered Hood River, though at times with utmost difficulty escaping foundering, as says Franklin. The waves were so high that the masthead of our canoe was often hid from the other, though it was sailing within hail. Once landed on the river bank, the mercurial voyagers, unmindful of the difficult and dangerous march before them, were in most joyful mood. They spent a gay evening before a large campfire, bursting into song, reciting the novel perils of the sea now past, and exaggerating with quaint humor every little incident. With the vigor of famishing men they scored the country for game, and nets were skillfully set under Cascade Falls, which yielded the first morning a dozen trout and whitefish. On these they made a delicious meal, seasoned by abundant berries, 
for in this country there remain on the bushes throughout the winter cranberries and red whortleberries. The voyagers were quite worn out, poling their boats up the rapids of Hood River. At times it was even needful to take out the loads, and, wading knee-deep in the ice-cold waters, drag the boats across the many shoals. One day Franklin was dismayed, though the men were quite indifferent, at coming to impassable rapids. They proved to be the lower section of a series of wonderful cascades, which could be passed neither by traversing nor by portage. For the distance of a mile, the river was enclosed by solid, perpendicular walls of sandstone, shutting the stream into a canyon that was in places only a few yards wide. In this single mile, the stream fell 250 feet, forming two high falls and a number of successive rapids. A survey of the upper river proved its unnavigability, even had a portage been possible. The crossing of the barren grounds was thus lengthened far beyond Franklin's expectations. Franklin, meantime, determining by astronomical observations the location of his camp on Hood River, informed the men that there were only 150 miles from Point Lake, which was opposite Fort Enterprise, their starting point the previous spring. The voyagers received this news with great joy, thinking it to be a short journey, as they had had no experience within the barren region. Franklin was not so cheerful, as accounts of the desolation from various sources had made him alive to the certain hardships and possible dangers of the march. He decided to omit no precaution that would relieve or obviate the hardships. Besides the five Englishmen, there were fifteen voyagers, of whom two were Eskimo hunters, two interpreters, an Italian, an Iroquois Indian, and nine Canadian half-breeds. All were men inured to hard service and familiar with frontier life. The large boats were taken apart, and from this material were built two small portable canoes, which were fit to carry three men across any stream that might be discovered in this trackless and unexplored desert. Such books, clothing, supplies, and equipment, as were not absolutely necessary for the journey, were catched so as to reduce the loads to be carried in the men's packs. The tanned skins that had been brought along for the purpose of replacing worn-out moccasins were equally divided, and strong extra food gear was made up with great care. Each one was given two pairs of flannel socks and other warm clothing, for freezing weather had come to stay. One tent was taken for the men, and another for the officers. On the last day of August, the party started in Indian file, each man carrying ninety pounds, and the officers according to their strength. The luggage consisted of their little stock of pemmican, tents, ammunition, fishing nets, hatchets, instruments, extra clothing, sleeping and cooking gear. Each officer had a gun, his field journals, instruments, etc., and two men were told off daily to carry the cumbersome and hated canoe. They were so heavily laden that they made only a mile an hour, including frequent rests. The voyagers complained from the first at taking two canoes, and were but half convinced when the ranging Hood River was speedily crossed by lashing the two canoes together. Their important vegetable food, berries, failed a few miles from the river, and as very little game was seen, 
they were obliged to eat the last of their pemmican on September the 4th. As a blizzard sprang up the next morning, the party was storm-bound for two days, passed without food or fire, their usual fuel moss failing as it was covered with snow and ice. The temperature fell to twenty degrees, and the wet tents and damp blankets were frozen in solid masses. On breaking camp, Franklin fainted from exhaustion, cold and hunger. Dr. Richardson revived him against his protest with a bit of portable soup, which, with a little arrowroot for sickness, was the only remaining food. The snow was now a foot deep, and trouble lay across swamps, where the new, thin ice constantly broke, plunging the wretched men up to their knees in ice-cold water. To add to their misfortunes, Benoit, to Franklin's distress, fell and broke the larger of the canoes into pieces. Worst of all, he was suspected of doing so maliciously, having threatened to destroy the canoe whenever it should be his turn to carry it. Franklin chose to ignore this mutinous conduct and resourcefully utilized the accident. Halting the march and causing a fire to be made of the birch bark and the timbers, he ordered the men to cook and distribute the last of the portable soup and the arrowroot. Though a scanty meal, it cheered them all up, being the first food after three days of fasting. After a march of two days along the river bank, they struck across the barren grounds, taking a direct compass course for Point Lake. The country was already covered with snow, and high winds also impeded their progress. In many places the ground was found to have on its surface numberless small rolling stones, which often caused the heavily burdened voyagers to stumble and fall, so that much damage was done to loads, especially to the frail canoe. As the only food gear consisted of moccasins, made of soft, pliant moose skin, the men soon suffered great pain from frequent stone bruises, which delayed the march, as the cripples could only limp along. The barren grounds soon justified their name, for though an occasional animal was seen and killed, the men more often went hungry. The deep snow and the level country obliged Franklin to adopt special methods to avoid wandering from the direct compass route, and the party travelled in single file, Indian fashion. The voyagers took turns breaking the path through the snow, and to this leader was indicated a distinct object towards which he travelled as directly as possible. Midshipman Hood followed far enough in the rear to be able to correct the course of the trail-breaker, to whom were pointed out from time to time new objects. This method of travel was followed during the whole journey, meeting with great success. In time they reached a hilly region, most barren to the eye, but where most fortunately were found on the large rocks, edible lichens of the genus Girophora, which were locally known to the voyagers as Trip de Roche, rock tribe. Ten partridges had been shot during the day's march, half a bird to a man, and with the abundant lichens a palatable mess was made over a fire of bits of the arctic willow dug up from beneath the snow. Franklin that night, which was unusually cold, adopted the plan, now common among Arctic sledgemen, of sleeping with his wet socks and moccasins under him, thus by the heat of the body drying them in part, 
and above all preventing them from freezing hard. Coming to a rapid flowing river, they were obliged to follow it up to find a possible crossing. They were fortunate to find a grow of small willows, which enabled them to make a fire and thus apply gum to the very much damaged canoe. Though the operation was a very ticklish one, three of the voyagers under St. German, the interpreter, managed the canoe with such dexterity as to ferry over one passenger at a time, causing him to lie flat in the canoe, a most uncomfortable situation owing to the cold water that steadily seeped into the boat. Starvation meals on an occasional grouse, with the usual trip de roche, caused great rejoicing when, after long stalking, the hunters killed a musk cow. The ravenous condition of the voyagers was evident from Franklin's statement that the contents of its stomach were devoured on the spot and the raw intestines, which were next attacked, were pronounced by the most delicate of us to be excellent. This was the sixth day since we had had a good meal. The trip de Roche, even when we got enough, only served to allay hunger of a short time. Suffering continual privations from hunger, they reached Rum Lake, where the supper for twenty men was a single partridge with some excellent berries. There was still trip de Roche to be had, but this unpalatable weed was now quite noiseless to the whole party, and in several cases it produced bowel complaints. Franklin considered that the safety of the men could now be insured through the lake fishing, as most of the voyagers were experts with the net from having long lived at points where they depended on fish for their food. His consternation almost gave way to despair when he discovered the fatal improvidence of the voyagers who, to lessen their burdens by a few pounds, had thrown away the fishing nets and burned the floats. They knew, says Franklin, we had brought them to procure subsistence for the party, when the animals should fail, and we could scarcely believe the fact of their having deprived themselves of this resource, which eventually caused the death of the majority of the party. Franklin at once lightened the loads of his sadly weakened men by abandoning everything, save astronomical instruments, without which he could not determine correctly the route. Under these disheartening circumstances, the captain's heart was cheered beyond measure by an act of heroic generosity on the part of one of his starving men. As they were starting on the march, Perrault came forward and gave to each officer a bit of meat that he had saved from his own allowance. Franklin says, It was received with great thankfulness, and such an act of self-denial and kindness, being entirely unexpected in a Canadian voyager, filled our eyes with tears. A short time after, Credit, one of the hunters, came in with the grateful news that he had killed a deer. The same day there was a striking display of courage, skill, and endurance on the part of one of the men, indicative of the mettle of these uncultured voyagers. In crossing a river, the first boatload consisted of St. German, Solomon Belanger, and Franklin. Driven by a strong current to the edge of a dangerous rapid, Belanger lost his balance and upset the canoe in the rapid. All held fast to the frail craft, and were carried to a point 
where they touched a rock and gained their footing, although up to their waists in the stream. Emptying the canoe of water, Belanger held the boat steady, whilst St. Germain placed Franklin in it and embarked himself in a dexterous manner. As it was impossible to get Belanger in the boat, they started down the river, and after another submersion reached the opposite shore. Belanger's position was one of extreme danger, and his sufferings were extreme. He was immersed to his waist in water near the freezing point, and worse yet, his upper body, clothed with wet garments, was exposed to a high wind of a temperature not much above zero. Two voyagers tried vainly in turn to reach him with the canoe, but the current was too strong. A quick-witted voyager caused the slings to be stripped from the men's packs and sent out the line towards Bellinger. But just as he was about to catch it, the line broke and the slings were carried away. Fortunately, there was at hand a small, strong cord attached to a fishing net. When Belanger's strength was about gone, the canoe reached him with this cord, and he was dragged quite senseless to the shore. Dr. Richardson had him stripped instantly, wrapped him up in dry blankets, and two men taking off their clothes, aided by their bodily heat, in bringing the sufferer to consciousness an hour or so later. Meanwhile, the distracted Franklin was watching this desperate struggle from the farther bank, where with drenched and freezing clothes, he was without musket, blankets, hatchet, or any means of making a fire. If this betossed canoe was lost, the intrepid commander and all the men would have perished. It is to be noted, as characteristic of the man, that in his journal Franklin makes no mention of his sufferings, but dwells on his anxiety for the safety of Bellanger, while deploring also the loss of his field journal and the scientific records. The loss of all their packslings in rescuing Bellanger somewhat delayed their march, but with the skill and resourcefulness gained by life in the wilds, the voyagers made quite serviceable substitute slings from their clothing and sleeping gear. Conditions grew harder from day to day, and soon, the only endurable situation was on the march, for then they were at least warm. The usual joy of the trapper's life was gone. The evening camp, with its hours of quiet rest, its blazing fire, the full pipe, the good meal, and the tales of personal prowess or adventure. Now, with either no supper or a scanty bit of food, the camp was a place of gloom and discomfort. Of the routine, Franklin writes, The first operation after camping was to thaw out our frozen shoes, if a fire could be made, and put on dry ones. Each wrote his daily notes and evening prayers were read. Supper, if any, was eaten generally in the dark, then to bed, where a cheerful conversation was kept up until our blankets were thawed by the heat of our bodies, and we were warm enough to go to sleep. Many nights there was not enough fire to dry our shoes. We durst not venture to pull them off, lest they should freeze so hard as to be unfit to put on in the morning. Game so utterly failed that the hunters rarely brought in anything but a partridge. Often there were days without food, and at times, faint and exhausted, the men could scarcely stagger through the deep snow. 
Midshipman Hood became so weak that Dr. Richardson had to replace him as the second man in the marching file, who kept the path-breaking leader straight on the compass course. The voyagers were in such a state of frenzy that they would have thrown away their packs and deserted Franklin, but they were unable to decide on a course that would ensure their safe arrival at Fort Enterprise. Now and then there were gleams of encouragement, a deer or a few ptarmigan, and once they thought they had a treasure trove in a large plot of Iceland moss. Though nutritious when boiled, it was so acrid and bitter that only a few could eat more than a mouthful or two. After six days of cloudy weather, Franklin got the sun and found by observation that he was six miles south of the place where he was to strike Point Lake. The error being due to their ignorance of the local deviation of the compass by which they had laid out their route. When the course was changed, the suspicious voyagers thought that they were lost, and gave little credit to Franklin's assurances that they were within sixty miles of Fort Enterprise. Dr. Richardson was now so weak that he had to abandon his beloved plants and precious mineral specimens. Their misfortunes culminated when the remaining canoe was badly broken, and the men, despite entreaties and commands, refused to carry it further. Franklin says, My anguish was beyond my power to describe it. The men seemed to have lost all hope, and all arguments failed to stimulate them to the least exertion. When Lieutenant Black and the Eskimo hunters started ahead to search for game, the Canadians burst into a rage, alleged an intended desertion, threw down their packs, and announced that it was now to be every one for himself. Partly by entreaties and partly by threats, for the officers were all armed, and in view of the fact that Franklin sent the fleetest runner of the party to recall the hunters, the voyagers finally consented to hold together as a party. Death by starvation appeared inevitable. But with his commanding presence and heroic courage, the captain was able to instill into the men some of his own spirit of hope and effort. And they were now on the summer pasturage grounds of large game. They were fortunate enough to find here and there scattered horns and bones of reindeer, refuse abandoned even by the wolves. These were eagerly gathered up, and after being made friable by fire, were ravenously devoured to prolong life, as were scraps of leather and the remnants of their worn-out moose-skin moccasins. September 26 brought them, in the last stages of life, to the banks of the copper mine, within forty miles of their destination. The misguided voyagers then declared themselves safe, as for once they were warm and full of food, for the hunters had killed five deer, and they came across a willow grove, which gave them a glorious campfire. But the seeds of disloyalty and selfishness now blossomed into demoralization. After gorging on their own meat, two of the voyagers stole part of the meat, set aside for the officers. The question of crossing the copper mine, a broad stream full of rapids, was now one of life or death. With remorse nearly bordering on desperation, the Canadians now saw that the despised and abandoned canoe was their real ark of safety. 
Following the banks for miles, no ford could be found despite the closest search. Franklin fixed on two plans for crossing, either by a raft of willows, which grew in quantities nearby, or by a canvas boat to be made by stretching over a willow framework parts of tents still in hand. The voyagers arrogantly scouted both expedients, but after wasting three precious days wrongling they built a willow raft. When done, its buoyancy was so slight that only one man could be supported by it. It was thought, however, that a crossing could be made by getting a line across the river by which the raft could be pulled to and fro. As an incitement to exertion, Franklin offered to the voyager who should take a line across the sum of three hundred livres, sixty dollars, a large amount for any of these men. Two of the strongest men failed in their efforts to work the raft across, the stream being rapid, and one hundred and thirty yards across. The single paddle, brought by Richardson all these weary miles from the seashore, was too feeble, and two tent poles lashed together were not long enough to reach bottom, a short distance from the shore. Repeated failures demoralized the voyagers, who cried out with common accord that they were lost. Dr. Richardson now felt that the time had come to venture his life for the safety of the party, and so offered to swim across the copper mine with a line by which the raft could be hauled over. As he stripped, his gaunt frame looked rather like a skeleton than a living man. At the sight, the Canadians all cried out at once, Oh, how thin we are! As the doctor was entering the river, he stepped on a dagger which had been carelessly left on the ground. It cut him to the bone, but he did not draw back for a second. Pain was nothing to the lives of his comrades. With the line fastened around his waist, he plunged into the stream. Before he reached the middle of the river, his arms were so benumbed by the cold water, which was only six degrees above the freezing point, that he could no longer use them in swimming. Some of the men cried out that he was gone, but the doctor was not at the end of his resources, and turning on his back, he swam on in that way. His comrades watched him with renewed anxiety. Could he succeed, or must he fail? Were they to be saved or not? The swimmer's progress became slower and slower, but still he moved on. When almost within reaching distance of the other bank, his legs failed also, and to the intense alarm of the Canadians he sank. The voyagers instantly hauled on the line which brought him to the surface, and he was drawn to the shore in an unconscious and almost lifeless condition. He was rubbed dry, his limbs chafed, and still unconscious was rolled up in blankets and placed before a very hot fire. In their zeal, the men nearly caused the death of the doctor, for he was put so near the fire that the intense heat scorched his left side so badly that it remained deprived for, of most sensation for several months. Fortunately, he regained consciousness in time to give some slight directions about his proper treatment. Apart from the failure of Richardson to cross the river, the spirits of the party were more cast down by the loss of Junius, the best hunter of the party. 
Taking the field as usual, the Eskimo failed to return, and no traces could be found of him. As a final resort, they adopted a plan, first advanced by Franklin, and the ingenious interpreter St. German offered to make a canvas boat by stretching across a willow framework the painted, waterproof canvas in which the bedding was wrapped. Meanwhile, the general body of the voyagers was in such depth of indifference that they even preferred to go without food rather than to make the least exertion, and they refused to pick the trip de roche on which the party now existed. Franklin records that the sense of hunger was no longer felt by any of us, yet we were scarcely able to converse on any other subject than the pleasures of eating. Finally the canoe was finished on October the 4th, and proving watertight, the whole party was ferried safely across one at a time. The week lost by ignoring Franklin's orders proved the destruction of the party as a whole. This was not the view of the voyagers, who were now as joyful that they were within forty miles of the station, as they had been downcast the day before crossing, when one of them stole a partridge given Hood, whose stomach refused the lichens. Of this mercurial change Franklin says, Their spirits immediately revived, each shook the officers by the hand, declared the worst of their difficulties over and did not doubt reaching Fort Enterprise in a few days. Franklin at once set back with three men ahead for assistance from Fort Enterprise, as previous arrangements had been made with a Hudson Bay agent to supply the station with provisions and to have Indians there as hunters. The rear guard, following slowly, found no food save lichens, and so began to eat their shoes and bits of their bedding robes. On the 3rd of March, two voyagers fell exhausted on the trail, and despite the encouraging efforts of their comrades, thus perished. To give aid to the failing men, to relieve the packs from the weight of the tent, and to enable Franklin to go ahead unencumbered by the weakest, Dr. Richardson asked that he be left with Hood and Hepburn at such place as fuel and trip de roche was plentiful, which was done relieved to be sent to them from the station as soon as possible. Of this, Franklin says, Distressed beyond description at leaving them in such a dangerous situation, I long combated their proposal, and reluctantly acceded when they strenuously urged that this step afforded the only chance of safety for the party. After we had united in thanksgiving and prayers to Almighty God, I separated from my companions deeply afflicted. Dr. Richardson was influenced in his resolution to remain by the desire which influenced his character of devoting himself to the succor of the weak, and Hepburn by the zealous attachment toward his officers. The nine other voyagers, given their choice, went forward with Franklin, but Michel Terrohot, the Iroquois Indian, and two Canadians returned next day to Richardson's camp. On his arrival at Fort Enterprise on October the 14th, Franklin, for the first time, lost heart, the station being unprovisioned and desolate. A note from the indefatigable back told that he was seeking aid from rowing Indians or at the nearest Hudson Bay post. Franklin says, It would be impossible to describe our sensations after discovering how we had been neglected. 
the whole party shed tears, not for our own fate, but for that of our friends in the rear, whose lives depended entirely on our sending immediate relief. On October 29, Richardson came in with the horrible news that two voyagers had died on the trail, that the Iroquois Indian Michel had murdered Hood, and that in self-defense he had been obliged to shoot Michel. Pending the relief of the party, which was on November 7, the members existed on Labrador tea, an infusion from a plant thus used by the Indians, on lichens, and the refuse of deer killed the year before. The deerskins gathered up in the neighborhood were singed of their hair and then roasted, while the horns and bones were either roasted or used in soup. Two of the Canadians died on this diet. Of a partridge shot and divided into six portions, Franklin says, I and my companions ravenously devoured our shares, as it was the first morsel of flesh any of us had tasted for thirty-one days. The praiseworthy conduct of Franklin and of his companions in prosecuting the work of outlining the Arctic coasts of North America is not to be measured alone by the fortitude and courage shown in crossing the barren grounds. An unusual sense of duty, akin to heroism, could alone have inspired Franklin and Richardson to attempt the exploration under the adverse conditions then prevailing in that country. A warfare practically of extermination, was then in progress between the Hudson Bay Company and the Northwestern Company. This struggle, under the instigation of misguided agents, aroused the worst passions of both half-breeds and of Indians, who were demoralized by the distribution of spirits. By diversions of hunters, many people were starved, while others were murdered outright. Franklin's sad experiences in the public service at Fort Enterprise were duplicated by the starvation and death of innocent people at other remote points through commercial cupidity or rivalry. Disastrous and lamentable, as was the outcome of the journey across the barren lands, it indicated in a striking manner the superior staying powers of the English as pitted against the hardy voyagers, Canadians, Eskimos, Indians, and half-breeds. Five of the fifteen voyagers perished, and one of the English. Doubtless the latter survived lar largely through their powers of will, acts of energy, and of heroic devotion to the interests of the party, one and all. End of chapter 2